Hello, sister. You are listening to the Womology Podcast. This is a sacred space to honor your cyclical nature, reconnect with your innate body wisdom, and transform your health. I'm Dana Drehos, and thank you so much for being here. Welcome back to the Womology Podcast. I'm here today with Hehe Stewart, who is the founder of Tranquility by Hehe Maternity Concierge and the creator of the Birth Lounge membership and podcast. She has a master's degree in human development and family studies and 10 years in the family life education field. Hehe helps people prepare for childbirth with research-backed education and data-driven support to have a confident birth experience while feeling informed and in control of labor without fear or coercion. So welcome he to the show. Thank you so much, man. You nailed that. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it's a fun place to be in the birth world right now in America. There's a lot of things happening. So wow. Thanks for sharing all of that. Absolutely. And yeah, just to mention to the audience, I apologize for any background noise you might hear. They literally just started some construction and drilling nearby me. So I'm going to do my best with editing. But in case you hear any of that, just so you know. But yeah, I'm so excited to dive into this conversation around preparing for childbirth in this crazy modern world that we're living in with all of these interventions. And I'm particularly excited because I don't know anything about this topic. I've never like tried to get pregnant or, you know, planned even to get pregnant. So, but I know of course, like there's so many people who would benefit from this episode and I'm just curious as well um, to hear about this. So The first thing I want to dive into is this idea of how the U.S. spends way more money on healthcare than basically any other country. And yet our maternity mortality rates are among the highest. Birth trauma is high. C-section rates are high. So can you talk a bit about why you think that is? Yeah, I actually think this is pretty simple. So it's because the healthcare here is a business model, right? It's a for-profit system. And so when we look at that, the incentives and kind of the reward system that is in place rewards or incentivizes the wrong things or the right things in the wrong ways. And so also the way that we measure things is a little bit skewed and doesn't so much align with our goals as a nation and where we want our birth stats to go, which is equally frustrating for consumers as it is providers. I know a lot of times we can harp on, you know, it's the doctor's fault, it's the doctor's fault, it's the doctor's fault. And while doctors do play a role in this, the system at large is much more to blame. There's only so much that doctors can change when you're working within a broken system. I think we've got a, a really big wave of influence coming through with consumers starting to kind of wise up and open their eyes and kind of learn what the medical system is all about and the foundations that it was kind of built upon. But all 
also, we've got a wave of influence coming from providers too, who are also waking up and using trauma-informed language and starting to think outside the box and starting to have more collaborative care with their patients rather than just kind of the care of like, I'm going to tell you what to do because I'm the doctor. I wear the white coat. Um, It's kind of like, yes, we know you're the doctor. You're wearing the white coat. Thank you very much. We still would like to be active participants in our care. And I think, I think those are two really big pivotal things that are coming in the future to American healthcare, hopefully. Mm, I hope so. In your own education, was it very the conventional way? And like, how did you come into this kind of alternative route? Yeah, great question. So I started out actually in early childhood education, and I was teaching in an infant and toddler classroom. And so I got to see firsthand how parents were so overwhelmed with a lot of big feelings and emotions uh, when they were headed back to work after having a baby. And so it led me to explore what those few weeks were like in families as they began to drop their kids off. And then I realized like, wow, we actually have a bigger problem on our hands. It was just, it was kind of like a rabbit hole, if you will. Once I dipped a toe in, I just dove head first. And I realized like, wow, our birth here in America has the potential to be so amazing. We've got the resources, we've got the people, we've got the education, we've got all of it. Why are stats not what they should be? And it really does come down to your first question of like, it's a business, it's for profit. So everything has a dollar amount labeled to it in some way, shape or form. And at the end of the day, that's kind of what determines how we move forward. And so when I discovered that about birth, I was like, wow, I think with my background, I could bring a very unique perspective to birth in a way that I am encouraging patients to be autonomous, but also have that respectful collaborative care with their providers. So I find that typically there are two sets of people. It's either people who just like blindly trust your providers. And a lot of us fall in that category. I was totally raised that way. And so it wasn't until my later adulthood where I kind of woke up and was like, wait, I should have some say in my health care as well and the decisions that are made around my body and the things that happen to it. You know, it was kind of through that doula journey that I did find that voice. So a lot of us are in that first category of, we just can't really speak up. Doctors know best. We should just do what they say. And then you have people who I feel like are on the far end of the spectrum of like, okay, can't listen to doctors. They are all out to get you. Everything is about money. You know, they're just here to like gobble you up basically, which doesn't make any sense business-wise because it is a business model. They're not trying to, you know, they, they profit in different ways, but there was no middle of the road, right? There was nobody that said, I'm awake. I am autonomous. I am capable of doing my own research and I am capable of having these respect full conversations with my provider. I do respect what they say, their training, their education, their knowledge, their expertise. But at the end of the day, I am going to be the one that makes the decision. And I just need to find a doctor that is aligned with me. And so that's my journey. It started out with small children and having that infant education. And you can see how that shapes the concierge approach that we have, that it is from prenatal through birth and well into the first year of postpartum that we support our clients, you know, cause there's just a lot that happens in that first year. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I love that. The middle of the road 
what are some things that someone maybe might hear from their OB and maybe feel like they don't have a choice when they actually do have a choice? I know you've, I've seen some things that you post on social media, like terms like failure to progress or, oh, you need a C-section because of this, or we need to induce because of this. And people just don't know, like they don't know what's, what they can have autonomy over versus like what they should really listen to this doctor about. Yeah. So that is a multi-layered question. So the first question is what do you have autonomy over? And the answer is everything. You literally Mm -hmm. have autonomy for everything. The first thing that you have to think about is that hospital policy is actually designed to protect the hospital. It's their policies. They are protecting themselves from getting sued and getting in trouble, right? It's their policy. You as the patient, as the consumer have the right to accept that policy and say, sure, I'm happy to abide by that. Or you can say, actually, that doesn't feel aligned to me. I'm not going to do that. I'm choosing to do X, Y, and Z. So as a pregnant person, as someone who is about to have a hospital birth, you need to know those two things. You need to know what feels aligned to you. Probably want to know what the data and the research say about these things. And what does hospital policy say? And then you can compare the two. If they do not match, you get to choose which one you're going to go forward with in your birth. A couple of these things can be eating and drinking and labor. How are you going to test for gestational diabetes? Are you going to do the traditional glucola drink or are you going to do an alternative test? Like fresh test is um, something that has just hit the market. There's something called the jelly bean test. Many home births midwives use a pancake in, you know, like orange juice, apple juice, some sort of juice in the morning test. You can replicate any of those in the hospital. Anything that's used for home birth, you can also request that it be done in the hospital. You know, other things are, are you going to have an IV in labor? This opens up the conversation that throughout your research of finding what's aligned to you, you also want to know the why behind those policies. Why might the hospital want you to have an IV in labor? Well, it's because if an emergency happens, we want an IV to already be placed, right? Then you have some arguments off of that. Well, if you're at a hospital with all of these trained medical professionals, giving an IV should be a very basic skill that every medical professional on an L&D unit should have, right? You have people that fall into that camp. Then you have people who fall into the camp of, yes, that's true, but now you're dehydrated and that makes it 10 times tougher to get in an IV. So when you get to the hospital, you may need to change your plan. Maybe you hadn't planned for an IV, but now you've been throwing up for the last six hours. So you know you're really dehydrated. You can go ahead and have that IV, right? The hospital wants you to have an IV for just in case. You kind of get to decide which amount of risk you're willing to take on. Are you going to say no to an IV because you're a low risk birth or you're staying hydrated and you know that the risk of you having something go wrong is very low? you're probably fine to say no to an IV. If you're someone who has, you know, a lot of risk factors or we have, uh, you have a personal factor, like a seizure disorder would be something that you may want to have an IV for that isn't based on dehydration, things like that. Laboring out of the bed, being mobile, you have choices around 
how they monitor your baby. So you can do intermittent auscultation, which is where they come around periodically and listen to your baby, or you can do continuous fetal monitoring, which are the belly bands that all of us are pretty much accustomed to seeing. The only problem is, is if you're a low risk birther and we don't have a medical reason to keep continuous fetal monitoring on you, it actually increases your risk for further complications, including C-sections and unnecessary interventions. We know that for low risk birthers, that intermittent auscultation, that periodic checking in on baby yields much better for both the birthing person and the baby, right? Most hospital policies are going to have it dictated where you have to, and for listeners, I have that like in air quotes, like air quotes have to have, you know, continuous fetal monitoring. You never have to do anything. I'm the queen of saying like, you never have to do anything. You always have a choice. Your doctor may say, I don't allow you to do that. And that's, it's your responsibility to recognize, whoa, I am an adult. No one allows me to do anything. And then you get to decide whether you're going to tell your provider that or not. And you can say it very gently. You can say like, with all due respect, you don't allow me to do anything. And I am comfortable going past my due date. I will see you next week for my regular prenatal for 41 weeks, right? It's okay for you to set boundaries with your doctor. And I think that's the, that's the shift that we're seeing that people are waking up to is that my doctor is not the end all be all. I am that active participant. I get to make my decisions. There is no have to in birth. If you don't want to, and you and your baby aren't in medical danger, then you shouldn't. You shouldn't be forced to do things that you don't want to do. And that includes things like cervical checks in pregnancy, cervical checks in labor, membrane sweep, amniotomy, which is where your medical staff breaks your waters for you instead of letting them naturally break on their own. Matter of fact, here's the thing. I will give you guys a free download of over 170 questions that you need to be asking and looking into researching before you go to have a baby. I call it the TBH things to consider. Um, So it's 170 plus things to consider before you have your baby. Um, And it goes into all of this. You know, you're going to want to know about things after your baby gets here too. Like what vaccinations are they given? Um, Do you want your baby to have a bath, you know, immediate skin to skin? Will you do delayed cord clamping? Will you store the cord blood? What will you do with your placenta? Do you want something called traction? There's so much. These are all things that I teach in the birth lounge, which is our membership and the app, but you need to know them. This is how you have an empowered birth because If you don't know this stuff, then your birth is really in the hands of the people who are serving you. It's the people who have the knowledge are the people who are in control. And so the more knowledge that you have, the more decisions that you can confidently make because you actually know what the risks are of the decisions that you're making. And you get to decide whether you're comfortable with that risk or not. Oh my God. I'm like so shook. Cause I like, I don't know anything about this, right? Like I think I thought you just get pregnant. You show up to the hospital, boom, just have a baby. Like I had no idea there's all these considerations. And I just like putting myself in the shoes of someone going through that. It's like, I have decision fatigue already, you know, and I feel like it must be kind of I know I might even be like, oh, you know what? I don't care anymore. Like, just do whatever, you know, I'm just so tired, like of all the decisions. Do you ever discuss that with the people that you work with? Yeah, for sure. So 
You know, I think that nature designed pregnancy so beautifully to be nine months, right? You have got an entire year of creating and getting to know your baby. So you've got nine months of pregnancy, and then you have three months of that immediate postpartum, which we call the fourth trimester. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you're growing your baby for nine months. Take those nine months to gradually eat through this information, kind of like the hungry caterpillar, right? You eat an apple today and a piece tomorrow and, you know, a cucumber the next day, like go through it and eat it in digestible chunks. And that way, when you get to your birth, you have spent all the last nine months laying this beautiful runway for a smooth landing, a smooth birth. Um, and I truly think that that is key to not getting overwhelmed with this. I know it is decision fatigue, right? This is actually literally the reason that it's so validating to hear you say this because it's literally the reason that the birth launch was created. Mm -hmm. I kept hearing people say, I don't know where to start. I don't know how to prepare for a baby. I don't even know what I don't know. So now I feel even more overwhelmed. Like, how do I even know if I'm studying the right stuff? And that's what is in the birth launch. It literally steps you through the control method. And so it teaches you how to stay in control during your prenatals, in your pregnancy, of your mindset, of your emotions throughout pregnancy and labor? How do you control the room and what that looks like and the people who are in your birth space? And how do you control the decisions made in labor? Things like what position you labor in, what position you push in. And again, the people who are allowed to watch you push and be part of that experience, you know, that's what the control method is all about because it is, it's super overwhelming. And a lot of people do think that you just walk into the hospital and you just flop, have a baby. But a lot of people in America too, it's like 40 to 60% of people who walk away from birth feel like they have birth trauma of some sort. And a lot of this can be avoided if we know about the system that we're walking into because it is broken. That means you can know ahead of time about the broken pieces, right? So I always picture it kind of like a video game. And like when you round this corner and there's like spilled oil on the floor, it's okay because in your backpack, you have some cardboard that you're going to lay down because you already knew there was going to be spilled oil somewhere along the way. So you brought your cardboard, right? And you lay it down and you walk over it. And the next thing is like, fire shooting out of the walls. And it's okay because you bought your fire suit because somebody had already told you, Hey, at some point when you get to level three, there's fire like shooting out of the walls. So make sure you take your fire suit. That is exactly what you should be doing in pregnancy so that you are prepared for all of those twists and turns. I call them loop-de-loos in labor. I love that analogy so much, man. It it blows my mind that women are not paid to be pregnant and to give yeah. birth and all like that is yeah. a full-time job to Absolutely. like <laughs> learn all of this and tease it all out. Like oh, that's a whole nother rabbit hole to go down. But I did have a question going back to, so when we talk about hospital policies, what actually happens if you decline? Um, you know, the doctor tells you this is what we recommend that you do. If you say no, does it mean that they're not going to help you and you have to go to another hospital or another doctor or what happens there? 
Yeah, that's a really great question. And I think that's a question that a lot of people have because not a lot of us are accustomed to saying no to our doctors or even asking questions, right? So Mm -hmm. hospital policy, you as the consumer, you have the right to decline that. And so it really comes down to you saying, you know, I'm just, that doesn't feel aligned to me. I'm going to decline. I feel okay with the risk that I'm taking right now. If it is something that is going to put you or your baby in danger, and your doctor doesn't feel comfortable or safe moving forward, they'll have that discussion with you pretty upfront and frank. And I think at that point, it's probably worth listening to them. You know, if your doctor is talking to you about your safety, that's a lot different than, you know, your doctor wanting to rush birth along just because you've been in labor for quote, a long time. Like, okay, labor is a long process. Sometimes it takes a long time. You know, that's not a problem. If we're worried about fetal heart tones or that birthing person in any way, that's a little bit different. So we always have to be evaluating risk. When it comes to hospital policy, sometimes we find providers will use tactics that aren't necessarily fair. So one of the popular ones is the dead baby card. And so they might throw it back on you and say something like, well, if you leave and something happens to your baby, then that's going to be on you, right? That's unethical treatment. That is manipulative language, you know, being given to you by your care provider. Provider, we definitely want to be aware of that. When you're talking about risk, your provider should be pretty unbiased and should be understanding to your concerns. So if you are truly, you know, not concerned with going past your due date because you know you're a first-time mom and you know that the majority of first-time parents are going to have their baby five to nine days past their due date. And your provider, you know, throws out this line of the dead baby card, it may be worth having a conversation and saying, what risk exactly are you talking about? And they say, okay, well, the risk of stillbirth goes up. And you say, yeah, but isn't overall, it's still less than half a percent. And they're like, yeah, but it goes up. And you're like, okay, but still I have a 99.5% chance that my baby is fine and I still have plenty of time to let them cook and choose their own birthday, right? There is a conversation to be had there. Um, Another thing that you might hear are providers who will say, you know, well, if you leave, your insurance may not pay. This is not true. This is just a pervasive You know, I don't know if it started out as a misconception or a lie, but it definitely is a falsehood for sure. So um, you your insurance will still pay if you leave AMA. Obviously, you don't want to leave if you or your baby are in danger. There's always that caveat that if you or your baby require medical attention, then you should seek medical attention and you should stay right. Most of the things, all of the things, everything that we're saying here is applicable to a low risk birther. So not anyone who's required any sort of medical attention. But yeah, if you leave AMA um, because the care that they're given doesn't feel aligned to you or you no longer feel like you need the care, you can leave and your insurance will still cover what they're supposed to cover. You know, and then sometimes they will say things like, well, actually, I'm not allowed to let you 
you know, whatever it is, be mobile during labor, um, say no to this IV, push in any other position on your back. Or sometimes you hear the variation of you're not allowed. So you're not allowed to say no to this vaginal exam. You're not allowed to eat and drink during labor. You're not allowed to have anything except water and ice chips during labor, things like that. The not allowed goes back to the same principle of have to. There is no, you don't allow me. I allow you to practice on me because I am the paying customer. You actually, you know, this is a working, you work for me. I'm Mm -hmm. the customer. I get to have the final say. And it's not a card of like, you know, it's not pulling your trump card or pulling, you know, rank on this person. It's just resetting the boundaries just to remind everyone about informed consent and informed refusal. You are allowed to, you know, engage in informed refusal as long as you understand the risk of the choices that you're making you feel confident in that and your provider has provided you counsel they have a legal and an ethical and a moral obligation to respect your autonomy as long as you and your baby are safe that caveats in everything but as long as you and your baby are safe you should be able to make the decisions even if you and your baby are not safe you should still be able to make the decisions your provider may not respect your autonomy as easily i mean you know if your baby is needing some life-saving procedure and your provider sees that they can fix it i imagine they're going to be very hesitant to listen to your no mm-hmm. right yeah Wow. And I imagine that kind of being autonomous in this way is quite difficult for a lot of women. Like we're not used to a lot of times just outright saying it like that and, and standing in our power and being and saying no and having these boundaries. Um, so is that something that you guys work on? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you hit the nail on the head. Who of us are like, you know, comfortable saying no and hitting, you know, setting those boundaries. If setting boundaries may be easy, it's the holding the boundaries that's really hard, right? And so, yes, A, we practice. B, I give you scripts. I give you the words that you can actually say. And then C, we really work on our mindset. So we do take that shift of, I'm actually the decision maker and my doctor is not the end all be all. They are a consultant of mine. I get to go to them for guidance and wisdom and medical knowledge. I get to ask their opinion. I will take that into consideration, but ultimately I'm the decision maker. We're really working on our mindset of I'm confident in my knowledge, right? So if you're not confident in your knowledge, get confident, get educated, get out there and start searching for that. It's in the birth lounge. So for members in the birth lounge, Get in the birth lounge and dig deep in that. Get that knowledge, get confidence so that you can be the one making the decisions around your birth. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Perfect. What are some some of the most important things that soon-to-be parents should be looking into about their chosen hospital or provider before having their hospital birth? Yeah. Good question. Like really great question. A lot of people will choose their hospital based on where their doctor provides care or is employed or just because I've always gone there before, but there are a couple of things you want to consider. So you're going to want to look at your hospital or your birth center's induction rate. You're going to want to know their epidural rate. You're going to want to know their C-section rate. And then you probably are going to want to consider how far the hospital is from your house. Um, Some people want to consider a NICU as well. If you're a low-risk birther and you don't have, you know, risk factors and 
you stay away from things that are known to cause further intervention, then the likelihood of you needing a NICU is very low. But those are the things that you can consider, right? If you are aiming to have a low intervention or no intervention, unmedicated vaginal delivery, and you choose a hospital that has a 73% C-section rate, that's not good. Those are not aligned. The chances that you are able to walk into a hospital that cuts open three out of four people and be that one in four, it's not, I mean, the stats are not on your side, sister, right? Like we are not looking pretty here. So look around for the hospitals that have low induction rate. That tells you that they trust birth and that they truly understand the onset of labor is super important. Choose somewhere that has a low epidural rate or high epidural rate based on your preference. And then a C-section. If you have a really strong preference to avoid a C-section, you're wanting to find a hospital that has 30, 33% or lower because that's our national average. So for me personally, that's kind of where the bar is set is if you are below the national average, you're doing good. If you're above it, you got a lot of work to do. Mm. All right. So going back to this kind of decision fatigue, all the decisions we need to make and it being kind of overwhelming. Is there a time sometime in this whole process where uh, the person who is pregnant would sit down with a provider or maybe a team of providers to discuss like, what are all these decisions that need to be made? And then you're, you're like, yes to this, no to that. Like, does that happen? Or does it kind of just organically come up like these decisions or... Yeah, not so much with medical providers. So I wouldn't say that the general population is going in and having these really in-depth conversations with their providers, partly because the medical model of care doesn't allow for that much discussion and time in prenatal Mm -hmm. visits. Now, depending on if you hire a doula or you have a childbirth ed class, if you attend a childbirth ed class, you will probably get exposure to some of these. Um, Doula practices are going to vary. So some doulas meet with you for one hour before your birth. Some meet with you several times. Us in particular, we're with our clients for the entirety of their pregnancy. So it's going to vary depending on which doula service you hire and then also which provider you have. So some providers are going to have these questions and discussions kind of naturally written into their prenatal appointments. But keep in mind, those are only 10, 12, 15 minutes max. So, you know, how deeply can you get into a discussion in that short amount of time? So that also is another reason that you want to be doing your research so that when you get in there, the time that you do have face-to-face with your provider can be utilized as best as possible. Mm, okay. Yeah. Cause I've heard of this thing called a birth plan and I was wondering yeah. like, where does that come in, in the process? Yeah. So a lot of people choose to present their birth plan to their provider around, you know, it depends on the person, but 32, 34, 36, some people wait even as late as 38 weeks. You know, a birth plan isn't anything that you have to have, and it's not necessarily the written birth plan that 
matters as it is the process of going through, thinking through what you would want in labor in these different options, in those 170 plus questions that you're going to need to answer or decisions that you're going to need to make in labor, right? If you already have thought through these things, you already know the risk and benefits. You already know the pros and cons. You already know the alternatives that you have. You already know your rights around this certain subject or decision or procedure, whatever it may be, then in labor, you don't have to do a lot of thinking. You've already kind of made your decision. And in that moment, you're just checking in of like, does this still feel aligned to me? Is this still what I want? Yep. Cool. Great. Do it. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I, I was thinking, a. I was imagining like this big conversation would happen. We're sitting down at a round table and I got the team around me and like, it's like, okay, here's the birth. Plan. <laughs> and you know, sometimes that's in, happens. that's in my made up fantasy world. <laughs> exactly. Sometimes. Well, I think a lot of us wish that it was that way. And in a perfect world, that is how it would be. Sometimes you might even break up your birth plan into a couple different prenatals since you only have 10 or 15 minutes with your provider. And maybe, you know, you do start a little bit earlier. You start at 32 weeks and you start talking about things incrementally as you go. And that way, when you get to your due date, you kind of have, you know, have had all the discussions that you wanted to have and you and your provider on the same page about what's going to go down in your labor and your Mm -hmm. preferences along the way. Mm -hmm. Okay. And for those who don't know, like what, what is a birth plan? Yeah. Yeah. So a birth plan is really, so in Tranquility by Hee and I know there's a, a big wave of it now, um, we've never really used the language birth plan. It's always been the birth preference sheet because that's exactly mm-hmm. what it is. It's a list of your preferences of um, the things it, it's, it's basically controlling the controllable. So the things that you do have control over are the lights in your birth room on, or are they dark? Do you have a sound machine going? And if you do, is it music? Is it white noise? Is it you know, a river that's running? Is it ocean waves? What do you have playing in the background? Are you going to wear the hospital gown or are you going to bring your own clothes? You know, you've Mm -hmm. got so many choices and it's just a list of your preferences. This is also a helpful place in knowing the hospital policy. So if something is hospital policy, you don't have to waste space on your birth plan, putting it on there because it's already innately what the hospital is going to default to, right? Mm -hmm. However, if you are going to do something or choosing to do things differently than what hospital policy suggests doing, that needs to be on your birth plan. It's suggested to have a birth plan that's just one page long and bulleted information so that nurses and providers can quickly skim over your birth plan because the likelihood, although they are out there, these providers definitely exist, but the likelihood that a provider will actually sit down and take a significant amount of time to look at your birth plan really digest it and or even come and speak to you about it is really low, right? It's not that's those aren't high chances that that happens. Although there are doctors out there who are really, really great at their job and they do take a birth plan, sit down with it, go over it with their patients, their clients, and really try and understand where they're coming from on the things that they want in their labor so that they can help them achieve their best birth possible. And that's what it's all about. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. So I had a question about C-sections. I was wondering, is it more often 
that C-sections are scheduled in advance or more often that C-sections are like this surprise thing where you were supposed to have a normal vaginal delivery, but maybe something happened and they're like, oh, we need to like do this emergency C-section. Yeah. Most C-sections, especially the unnecessary ones are coming from unexpected birth twists and turns, if you will. So they are what's called unexpected, unplanned C-sections. And there are a couple different types. So you have the emergency C-sections where either the parent or the baby's life are in danger. Then you have the non-emergency sections. These are just the unplanned ones that birth just didn't go like we thought and it needed to end in a C-section, but there was no life-threatening or there was no danger moment in there. And then you have RCS, which is routine C-section. It's a scheduled event. Um, and that's a small population. Typically, we also see those in second-time parents who um, maybe enjoyed their C-section the first time and or had a very traumatic time the first time. And so they want a little bit more control over the situation. Um, and the experience this time in an RCS is one of those ways that you can do that. Mm. So in all of these questions that you're thinking about before you um, actually are in the hospital doing the thing, is that kind of something you're thinking about too? Like, oh, in the case of emergency C-section, I want things to be this way, or do you not even really have a choice at that point? Yeah, absolutely. You said we always have choices though. (laughs) Exactly. So you always have choices. Um, You know, in a C-section, it looks a little bit different having an empowered C-section than it does with an emergency C-section. So typically when one of the lives are in danger, then we're doing everything that we can to obviously save that life and keep both of them safe. Doesn't mean that you don't have choice. So one of the things that you may have a choice over in an emergency C-section that you don't know about is not having your arms strapped down. So if you are are still mentally capacitated. So you still have, you know, mental awareness and you're able to take directions because there are some places where, you know, your anesthesiologist is going to be talking to you. The OR doctor might be talking to you. A nurse might come up and talk to you. You need to have that mental awareness, but you don't have to have your arms strapped down. Also in an emergency C-section, it's possible depending on how emergent and how um, fast, how timely things need to happen. You may be able to have them drop that blue drape to be a clear drape. So as your baby emerges from your tummy, you can see them depending on what the emergency is for. We'll want to consider whether you actually want to see what's on the other side of that drape or not, right? For planned or routine or scheduled C-sections, those are all the same. They're just used interchangeable. Um, You are looking at a much more calm and grounded and controlled experience. So you can ask them to play music over the OR speakers. You can ask them to either step you through everything they're doing because that brings you comfort or step you through nothing because you want to know nothing that's going on behind that drape because that brings you comfort. You can ask to not have your arms strapped down. You can ask to have your partner sitting right beside you. You can ask for skin to skin in the OR. You can ask for a clear drape where you can see everything that goes on in your surgery if that brings you comfort. Again, you can have the blue drape until the surgery is done and a clear drape is, the blue drape is dropped and the clear drape is kind of left when your baby emerges. Like You have all of these options when it comes to a routine C-section that we 
probably most likely might not have in an emergency C-section, a true emergency, but there are cases where someone will be laboring and the doctor says, okay, well, you know, I'm just going to call it and let's do a C-section. It doesn't look like this is going to work for you. It's failure to progress, which, you know, I feel like that's a totally whack diagnosis because it typically is like a failure to trust birth or make that birthing person feel safe or, you know, it's a failure to wait. I mean, how many times have we diagnosed someone with a failure to progress when really they just needed more time, you know, failure to progress. So the doctor has told you that you need a C-section and they're calling it, but then you wait two and a half hours for the OR. Hmm. That's not an emergency, right? Hmm. You and your baby were not in danger. Actually, fingers crossed that in that two and a half hours, you made progress and you get to have your vaginal delivery. Or maybe in that two and a half hours, you decide to get an epidural. It relaxes you to 10 and you spit your baby out in 10 minutes. Like fingers crossed that that roadblock of getting to the OR quickly actually provides your labor a little bit more time to progress. But that's a good deciding factor. So if listeners are out there and they're like, wow, I was Failure to progress. So they called me a C-section and they called it an emergency C-section. But then I did wait for the OR for two hours because there was, you know, somebody else in there. Your C-section was not an emergency, right? Mm -hmm. It was unplanned for sure. Unplanned, unwanted C-section, not emergent. Mm -hmm right? Mm -hmm. Not emergent. There's a big difference. And right now in medical terminology, we either have emergency C-section or RCS. There is no like non-emergent, unplanned, unwanted C-section, but no one's life was in danger category. Mm. Mm. Wow. Thank you so much for that. And I feel like this really can translate into so many other areas of life, this, this autonomy, this like speaking up for yourself and knowing what options you have. I'm even just thinking about going to the dentist and probably how, like, you know, when you're getting a cavity filled, there's probably choices you have that you're not even aware of or things that you can just ask for that would make you more comfortable or like having sex with someone, you know, like you have choices, you have the ability to say no or yes to things. So thank you so much for this. And I would love for you to share more about Tranquility by Hihi and what offers you have, how people can get in your world. Cool. Thank you very much for having me. This was such an enlightening conversation. I could talk about this all day. It's true. You really are the captain of your ship and that you know includes the medical setting, even if it doesn't feel like that rights are on your side. There are laws protecting you. You have rights as a consumer of medicine uh, to make sure that you're the one who's making the decisions around the things that are happening to and around um, and for your body. So yeah, if you wanted to learn more about Tranquility by Hihi, our one-to-one services, we have doula support. So we have in-person, virtual, um, and online doula support. You can join the Birth Lounge. It's a membership. It's a monthly membership. You can just go to thebirthlounge.com. You can also download the Birth Lounge app which is found in any app store. It's $5 a month, or you can come hang out for free on Instagram with me. I hang out in stories all the time. I'm super engaged over there. Hang out on my messages. We have like a really, really cool crowd there. So yeah, fun stuff, all sorts of ways that you can get a hold of our community and learn more about how you can really be in control of your birth experience. 
Amazing. And I absolutely love all of your Instagram posts. I love your energy and just like everything about it. So I highly encourage everyone listening to go check out all these amazing resources. Thank you so much. I'm so glad I got to talk to you today. Thank you for having me. Bye y'all. Thank you so much for listening. If you desire to go deeper, I invite you to follow me on Instagram at Dana.Drejos or visit my website, DanaDrejos.com for more free resources and ways to work together. Wishing you peace, love, and health.